Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the, uh... Please tell me we're dreaming, Adam. This taping is actually happening, Josh. That's Leonardo DiCaprio and Ellen Page in a scene from Christopher Nolan's Inception. This week, we go three dreams deep, taking another look at the Nolan Mindbender on its 10th anniversary. Plus, our top five films of the year so far. Yep, more than five movies have come out this year. More than five good movies, in fact. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Another week, another delay, Josh, for Tenet, the latest from Christopher Nolan. That film now scheduled for an August 12th release. It means, I guess, we can space out these final few films in our Nolan Oeuvre review a little bit more. Yeah, I suppose it gives us that advantage, but still sad news. I mean, obviously, for both of us, for most people, one of the most anticipated movies of the year. Just to keep see it getting pushed back is not fun. Yeah. And you have to wonder whether or not August 12th is realistic with COVID-19 cases spiking all over the country. Nolan's Inception, which celebrates its 10th anniversary this year, is as of this recording, Josh, still scheduled to return to theaters, taking Tenet's original slot on July 17th. So you have Nolan doing basically what we did when the pandemic hit. 
he went to his archive for content. Sure. And we we went back to movies we've, for the most part, already talked about here on the show. These films do comprise our Nolan retrospective, what we're calling the Oeuvre Review, and it continues with Inception this week. Our podcast listeners will hear some listener feedback from our recent Spielberg show. We did a 45th anniversary Sacred Cow review of Jaws, and we power ranked the five decades of Spielberg's directing career just a few weeks ago before taking a quick break. That was a fun show, Josh. And surprisingly, we only got a few angry emails about your daring to play Spielberg's 90s output in your last slot, number five. Yeah, well, sometimes when you're faced with the truth, Adam, there's not much more you can say. (laughs) Yeah, I did have it at four, so I'm not sure that I'm shielded from all that hatred either. We will get to all that later in the show. But first, Adam and I have seen a fair number of new releases this year, just, you know, at home. Hey, Adam and Josh, this is your former production assistant, Andy Mitchell, with a recommendation for your best film of 2020 so far. Uh, That film is Sam Fader's Disclosure, which is a documentary about uh, nothing less than the history of cinema and television through the lens of the transgender community. It may look like a typical activist film, but it plays more like uh, the story of film series that Mark Cousins did a few years ago. It weaves together clips uh, from from the silent era to today with fascinating reactions from dozens of trans artists. I'm telling you, I did not expect to come away from this thinking a daytime talk show like Jerry Springer might have actually been helpful in some way. So check it out. It's streaming now on Netflix. I hope you give it a watch. Uh, thanks for the show. Uh, here's hoping for a better back half of 2020. Always nice to hear from our former PA, Andy Mitchell, and a great recommendation there. I know we've both been rushing over the past week to fit in some movies that we hadn't caught up with yet this year. I did make time for Disclosure after Andy's recommendation, and even though it didn't make my top five, I'm with Andy. Highly recommend the film, and he mentioned it almost playing more like a story of film series. I think that's what's so remarkable about the documentary is if Sam Fader had come to me for any advice— on how to approach the subject matter, I might have said, if you're going to try to tell the entire history of transgender representation in cinema, you probably either have to pick that lane or pick the lane of telling these more personal stories of the various performers and artists who are following in the wake of that and who are now carving out their own identities on screen and how far we've come. Talk about that evolution with maybe a little bit of that perspective, Josh, of course needed, but it would divide the documentary too much. And somehow it is this absolutely thorough, edifying look at the way cinema has typically represented transgender identity. But it also reveals these really amazing personal stories of these artists. So definitely recommend Disclosure, available now on Netflix. And I suppose with that, Josh, let's get into our countdown. It has certainly been an odd year, but we feel like we've seen enough movies and certainly more small movies, maybe, in terms of the big Hollywood releases. We haven't been able to get out to the theater, that's for sure, but it's really been a boon for video-on-demand opportunities and for seeing a lot of movies that would fit into our golden brick type of category. I have three potential golden bricks among my top five, so movies made by new directors 
or new to us directors. Is that similar for you? Yeah, I think that's what's had the most effect on my list compared to previous years, which is a good thing. You know, we we do our best to give attention to these smaller films. And this strange year without major theatrical releases, we've been able to do even more of that. So I think this list would probably look a little different um, if um, there had been the usual theatrical release date. But I still feel really good about the films that I have on my list. And it's going to be a mix of some we've talked about, even reviewed together on the show, Adam, and a few, a couple that we haven't. My first here at number five is one we gave a lot of time to, and I'm glad we did. It's never, rarely, sometimes, always. And as you said, this is a leading Golden Brick candidate, I think, from writer-director Eliza Hittman. Stars Sidney Flanagan as Autumn, a pregnant 17-year-old traveling from her rural home in Pennsylvania to have an abortion in New York City. We spent a lot of time, Adam, on the scene, Autumn's intake interview with a counselor. It's this single-take sequence, for the most part, on Flanagan's face as this mask of stoicism she's been wearing since the first frame of the film finally starts to crumble with each answer she gives. And my reading is that she's just overwhelmed, not so much by the details of these questions or what it reveals about her past. She's overwhelmed by the reality of being non-judgmentally seen by this counselor. Uh, Flanagan is a wonder in the sequence. Hitman captures it beautifully. There are plenty of other reasons, never rarely, sometimes always made this list. I think Talia Ryder is also very good as Autumn's cousin, who accompanies her, but really this scene is all the movie needed to make the cut. Uh, If for some reason listeners haven't had a chance to see this yet, it is now available for streaming, so pretty easy to check out. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. I'm just not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. Going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. Used to be on the street. Who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Can I sleep here? Where's the rest of the money? La, la. Yeah, why don't we go ahead and jump to my number four, actually, because it is never, rarely, sometimes, always. And we did talk a lot about that scene during our review. I also touched on, for me, what was really the transcendent touch, as I termed it during our discussion, the scene that had the most powerful impact on me. And it's a simple moment of embrace between the two friends when one of the friends is maybe going a little further with something than she herself even feels comfortable with. And it's funny, I got a comment from a listener on my letterbox review of this film who said, Adam, that handhold is the most overwrought after school special scene I've seen since Degrassi. And besides pointing out that, you know, I never did watch Degrassi, any of its incarnations, I suppose I have a different perspective on what constitutes overwrought compared to this listener, because that touch That literal touch is precisely so powerful to me because it's the most blatant display of emotion and of affection in a movie that is otherwise so restrained and so unsentimental and use the word to describe the main character stoic, right? So Mm -hmm. it has that approach in depicting these two teenage girls struggles that when you get even something that's that 
affecting in a subtle way, it really has an impact. We weren't alone, certainly, in appreciating this movie, and I wanted to go ahead and play a quick bit here from a longtime listener, longtime voicemail contributor Josh Youngerman, who has this film as his number one film of the year so far. Hey, Adam and Josh and Film Spotting, this is Josh Youngerman calling in to give my pick for film of the year so far. Uh, it's been a strange year to say the least, and so there's been a lot that I've missed and I need to catch up on, including First Cow by Kelly Reichardt, and I have not seen The King of Staten Island. But it's been a pretty good year for film. Um, uh, the Invisible Man, I think, was one of the most daring studio films that I've seen in a while. And I really love this indie film called Miss Juneteenth. But if I had to give my favorite film of the year so far, it's easy. It's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always by Eliza Hittman. Uh, I was not a huge fan of Hittman's last film, Beach Rats, but I think this film was basically flawless. Um, I really appreciate the uh, show-don't-tell approach to storytelling that Hitman invokes. It reminds me of Leave No Trace. And uh, the scene in the abortion clinic where the film gets its namesake from is utterly heartbreaking. And I also think the film does a really good job of showing just how class and um, things like poverty impact your, um, your access to things like abortion services. I hope you guys have a great show and looking forward to hearing your picks. Never, rarely, sometimes, always, as you pointed out, Josh, available for rental on Amazon Prime, Google Play, YouTube, and other platforms. For the record, I'm with you, Adam, on the handhold. I thought that was a really nice moment, so worked well. All right, we'll go to my number four and then jump, I guess, back to your number five, Adam. But in this slot, I have Weathering With You. Uh, Japanese animation filmmaker Makato Shinkai, he isn't as well known as Hayao Miyazaki in the United States. He hasn't had as prolific a career either, but he's been doing some remarkable work in recent years. Your Name made my 2017 top 10 list, and at this point, Weathering With You has a shot at making my list for 2020. Uh, I briefly endorsed it on the show very early in this year. It's about a teen runaway in this Tokyo that's enduring these historic storms. He meets a sunshine girl, so a young woman with this mystical ability to dispel storms, and together they start a business that basically offers sun for sale. This movie is many things. It's an echo fable. There's some social commentary going on. It also works as a teen romance. Um, I, I appreciated all those elements, but really it's the animation that stuck with me, and precisely the storms that Shinkai and his team depict here. Uh, the rolling clouds, these torrential rains, the blazing sunlight that comes out. It is all amazingly envisioned realistically. It, it toes that line of having a realism that's astonishing, but still the imagination that great animation can express. So unfortunately, Weathering With You is not readily available as far as I can tell. It looks like you can purchase it on Blu-ray. If you're a fan of Shinkai or, or just anime, I would say that's well worth it. If you're just curious about checking it out, hopefully there will be an easier chance to do that in the months ahead. It's one I haven't caught up with yet, but I know I will soon because, as you know, Josh, I've been watching a lot of Japanese animated films with my family over this time of isolation at home. And we started with Miyazaki, and then we went ahead and started on the Ghibli films that were made by filmmakers other than Hayao Miyazaki. And my son, Quinn, who's 13 now, just turned 13, he 
actually still points to your name. If you ask him what his favorite film of all time is, he says it's your name. Oh, you're kidding. So, no. So, I am looking forward to watching the latest from Makoto Shinkai. My number five, you're right, we're going to take one step back, is another film we've talked about. And actually, all five of my choices are movies we have reviewed either in full or given at least a few minutes to. So, I'll probably be relatively brief, but it's a documentary called The Painter and the Thief from filmmaker Benjamin Ree and maybe a good follow-up, Josh, to Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, as you mentioned the importance of being seen. That's really what this film in so many ways is about. And the story itself is so fascinating that you would probably watch this movie and enjoy it regardless of the filmmaker's approach. I think you can say that about a lot of documentaries that just have a great core story. And that could have been the case here, right? You've got a Czech painter of relative fame, has had some success as an artist, and she confronts one of the men who stole her two most popular and valued paintings. And not only confronts him, but becomes really deeply connected to him in a way that is healthy, but also perhaps unhealthy. And again, I would just watch that story, even if you just gave me probably traditional talking heads. But Benjamin Ree makes this movie its own work of art with his empathy and how that then translates to the formal approach. It really manifests itself in the attention he gives to both of those title characters, the painter and the thief. It's not just about, as it seems to be maybe at first, about this victim, the painter, getting some kind of catharsis through him and through this film, this all being a vehicle for her to somehow be made whole again. But it's really about Carl Bertel's pain and his perspective is just as crucial. We really get the full, messy, complicated portrait of how he sees himself, how she sees him, and literally how she sees him in the way that she paints him, which then presents him with a new perspective that isn't life-changing in the way it might be in a Hollywood movie, but in reality, I think, is still really powerful and it's subtly transformative so definitely recommend people see the painter and the thief if they haven't had a chance yet it's on amazon apple tv google play hulu and voodoo i think and for what it's worth re recently reached out to us via email josh and i would love to maybe have a chance to talk to him at some point here about his work and about this film in particular also a good year for art documentaries in general, especially about women painters. I did recently catch up with Beyond the Visible, Hilma af Klint, which is about this Swedish artist that I had forgotten comes up in Personal Shopper, the Olivier Asayas film starring Kristen Stewart, but is otherwise a new name to me and was a new name to the entire art world before there was a full appreciation of her work and people realized that she's probably the grandmother of abstract art. She was painting stuff way back in the early 1900s that influenced generations after her, and art history has completely overlooked her. So maybe a great pairing. That's another one you can get on demand on some different platforms, Beyond the Visible and The Painter and the Thief. Two paintings were stolen from a gallery in Norway today. The paintings were stolen in broad daylight. I don't know what to think. We had his name from the court papers. You might know who I am. I'm just a curious person. What made you do it? It was your masterpiece. It's all right. We 
the painter and the thief, an honorable mention for me. And yeah, the what you're talking about, Adam, the expansive scope of it is built into the very structure that Benjamin Ree devises for this film, right? We think it's going to be just about the painter. And then we almost repeat some of the same scenes from mm-hmm. um, from Bertel Nordland's perspective. And that's just an ingenious way to go about this. And I think um, pays dividends for sure. All right. At number three for me is The Assistant. I knew I had to catch up with this, uh, which you had shortlisted for the Golden Brick, Adam, before Mm -hmm. I made my top five. And I am so glad I did. What a thrilling, formal experiment this was. And if I might have given, right now I might be giving this the edge over Never Rarely, Sometimes Always for the Golden Brick. It's probably just because of that formal inventiveness, I think. Uh, This chronicles a day in the life of an assistant on the bottom rung at a New York City film production company and just meticulously chronicles the little details that reveal the boss to be this abusive tyrant who wields his power, wields his influence to sexually manipulate the actresses, waitresses, pretty much any woman he comes across and desires. Obviously, Harvey Weinstein is is the obvious model for the film. Now, the formal inventiveness comes in the fact that everything is communicated by writer-director Kitty Green via these seemingly innocuous images and sounds that are given by the filmmaking a sense of dread. So think about that early shot of the boss's office we see. We're outside the door of his office, um, but looking into it, she has the chair, his large, empty executive chair, which is bigger than any other chair in the office, positioned right at the center of the screen and just gives it this dominant and mm-hmm. ominous position. And then there's another moment later on, and really every moment of the film works like this. These are just two examples that came to mind. We watch Jane at one of her many minor tasks. This is the assistant, and it's basically making photocopies of actresses' headshots. So a legit task for someone in her position, right? But as face after face spits out of the machine, and again, there's sound design work going on here, it dawns on us that this is an assembly line, really, of potential Mm. victims that we're seeing. Now, as you noted when you discussed the film, Adam, we never see the face of the boss. We hear him mumbling. We see like his body as he passes by. Somehow that just adds to the sense of threat. Speaking of Jaws, you know, there's kind of a a Jaws corollary here where the less we see of the monster, the more we can imagine. Um, A lot more could be said about the assistant. One thing I want to make sure to get to, though, is to praise Julia Garner in the title role as Jane. She wears this face of steely resolve, uh, and it rarely reveals what's underneath, this frustration, this anger, this fear, really a, a sense of helplessness that's churning inside of her. But every once in a while, the performance gives us hints of all of that, like like this section where she's at her desk and she just stiffens when the boss kind of comes by with a bunch of underlings and then she even flinches. I mean, this could just be the normal nervousness you have when the boss passes by, but the filmmaking, Green's choices have already set us up to realize that that something bigger is amiss. So I caught up with the assistant on Amazon. It's, it's readily available to stream elsewhere. And really would encourage people to check it out. Yeah, another understated film used the word meticulous. It is definitely meticulous in documenting the indignities of her day and so many others, everyone really who comes in contact with that monster. It's my number six, so just missed my top five. And it was one of our poll options. We asked listeners a few weeks ago to name their favorite film of the year so far, and it did come in last. We'll get to those results here in a little bit. I think more people do just need to catch up with this film 
film, obviously, but one defense of it, someone who picked it as her favorite was Shoshana Rosenbaum. She said this, it's the most understated thriller I can remember seeing with an antagonist who is never visible on screen. There it is. And yet ever present and a fantastic performance by Julia Garner in which she conveys so much while her character tries so hard to keep her feelings held in. The movie was chilling and how it quietly depicts the way society has been complicit for so long with predatory behavior by powerful men. I appreciate you putting it on this list and I appreciate that three of your five poll choices are films directed by women. Maybe one silver lining of this terrible time is how it's disrupting the movies we prioritize and letting underseen talent rise to the top. I mean, Shoshana nails it in every regard there. In those comments, she mentioned that three of our five poll choices were movies directed by women. Three of my top five choices were directed by women. Four of my top six, counting Kitty Green and The Assistant. And Shoshana is right about the complicity element. One of the really complicated things about The Assistant is the way it recognizes that Jane herself becomes somewhat complicit, even as she's trying to work her way through that Mm -hmm. and obviously does not approve. But it's that example I gave when your task, your rightful task for your job that makes sense, like the photocopying of the headshots, is also interwoven into this guy grooming the women, or at least, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, that's something that she is as a character struggling with. And the movie recognizes as well. It's not just like this, this crusader who's going to take this guy down. It really gets into the struggle that this character is dealing with inside. Definitely a scene of the year candidate too in the assistant. If you're gauging it on a lot of factors, performance and writing, but also how much it infuriates you, an HR scene oh, yeah. where she talks to Matthew McFadden. Yeah, probably the longest dialogue scene in the film, um, mm-hmm. but a wise choice to suddenly allow conversation to become part of the the formal choice because we're just waiting for her to, to get a chance to do something about this. And the way mm-hmm. he kind of blocks her off is, you're right, it's, it's really well done, but also maddening. My number three features the work of a pair of female directors, Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy. The movie is Blow the Man Down. Nice. Yeah, you've got two more women here, younger women, like our heroines in Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. They are slightly older, more in their mid-20s, maybe, who are completely in over their heads. But in this film, it's mine for dark comedy instead of pure dread. And it's a playful crime movie in a Coen Brothers sort of way that really reveals who these sisters are to each other as sisters, but also as individuals over the course of the movie and over the course of some of the choices they have to make. We also really understand how they fit within this place, this remote coastal town that seems entirely built on secrets and moral compromises, probably and certainly in some cases with a greater good in mind, but those compromises aren't without their consequences. And we got a comment in our poll from Sam Bass. He went with other in the poll and wrote in Blow the Man Down as his favorite film of the year so far for its abiding sense of place, deft tonal switches, and the most surprising and delightful Greek chorus I can remember. Yes, We singled that out, too, as a real strength of the movie, this group of fishermen that the movie does rely on as a quasi-Greek chorus. The movie opens with them actually singing this old sea shanty, and it just sets you up so perfectly for the tone of the film, the mood of the film, but also understanding the type of people who inhabit this place. And you get those great voices, but it's mixed with this real musicality of not just their singing, but of their work. That's such a key part of everything that happens in this town. It's what 
people do. They relate to each other through those actions, through their occupations, which are driven by being where they are and being so close to the water for the most part. So in addition to great touches like that, we also get some really fun performances from actresses like Margot Martindale and June Squibb. This movie is on Amazon Prime for free if you have a subscription. Yeah, Margot Martindale, you know, has a firm lead, I think, for me and Best Supporting Actress so far just for this movie for Blow the Man Down. I love that it's on your list just outside of my top five. And also, speaking of year-end honors, that opening sequence you mentioned, singing the title song, definitely an opening scene of the year candidate. On a New England aisle in a good seaport town Come blow the man down the fishing pays nicely if you don't drown. Give me some time to blow the man down. Where boys become. All right, my number two is a movie we have not talked about at all. It was one that has been on my radar since it was getting raves out of film festivals at the end of last year and had, I believe, a February theatrical release in possibly just New York City and maybe LA. But it's Vitalina Varela. This is from Portuguese director. Pedro Costa. And one reason I wanted to make sure I saw this is because I've never seen a Costa film before. Um, aware of him as a much admired international filmmaker. And boy, what a treat. Before I get into the story, I have to talk about the aesthetics. This is a work of astonishing visual richness. There's a depth to both dark and light. There's a fullness of color an exquisite care for composition. You can get absolutely lost in this imagery because, and I think that's a good thing because this could probably be considered slow cinema. Um, there is a plot, there's a story, but scenes are lengthy. The camera rests within them for a long time. And so you need images that deserve that attention. And, and these absolutely do. So here's the story. Non-professional actor Vitalina Varela anchors the film, which bears her name, and she also shares screenplay credit with Costas. She plays a woman who has finally, after many years, followed her immigrant husband from the island of Cape Verde to Portugal, but she arrives a few days after his death. Basically, for the rest of the film, this happens early on, the rest of the film, she lingers in this hovel that he has built uh, tries to learn what she can about the time that they were apart and really tries to come to terms with why he suddenly left her and then spent so many years in this new place. Now, to get back to the look of the film, here's another opening scene of the year candidate. The camera is focusing on this dark and narrow stone street. There are high walls on either side. We see some crosses, maybe from a cemetery, peeking up over the top of the wall on the right. And then at the back of the screen is this deep black pit where the street basically disappears. So we sit on this for a little while, take in all these details, and then slowly figures begin to emerge from it. They eventually form this silent procession that takes place under the cover of darkness. It's just mesmerizing before we find out any of the details that fill in what actually is going on. Uh, there are also scenes of Vitalina that you could really describe as portraits of her sitting within this house, contemplating um, her situation or doing small domestic tasks. And again, the lighting, the color, they really resemble Vermeer paintings is what came to mind for me. So I wrote, I was really taken with this film. I wrote at length about it on my Larson on Film website. Also got into the way it almost seemed to fetishize these characters' poverty, but then crucially makes lighting decisions that turn away from that. Um, so 
so much to this movie, an incredible film. And if you want to track it down, I was able to watch it via the Grasshopper Film website. They list a number of local independent streaming venues that you can support. So basically, there might be an art house theater near you that if you go to Grasshopper Films, choose to watch it through their link, um, your ticket purchase would then go towards them, which is, I think, something a lot of us are trying to do Mm -hmm. right now when we can't go out and support those local art theaters that we had been used to doing. Yeah, this film has been on my radar for a few months, and unfortunately, I still haven't gotten to it. So I was all in before you got to the Vermeer reference, but that (laughs) just cinches it even more, Josh. My number two film of the year so far is not as heady material as Vitalina Varela. It is Fire the trip Saga. to Greece. Fire. Oh, nope. I thought you were nope. going Fire Saga. <laughs> I am going comedy. Okay. The trip to Greece. <laughs> and is this movie getting a little bit of a boost on my list because we watched all four films or I rewatched the three prior films before watching The Trip to Greece and thought about it in relation to the three previous installments as we were making our top five trip series scenes? Maybe. Probably. But for me, this whole trip series is almost the before trilogy. I'm perfectly content to just check in every five or 10 years with Coogan and Bryden. That said, what I appreciate about Greece so much, and we talked about this during our review, is how it serves as a perfect final chapter to these films and to these characters, these personas that Rob Bryden and Steve Coogan have created. It definitely feels like Michael Winterbottom, the director, and those two performers are are ready to be through with this series because they have so, I think, lovingly and with a sense of melancholy given us this final installment. I think the conceit of tracking Odysseus's journey home makes perfect sense perfect emotional sense, as well as providing the framework for this chapter. But beyond that, Josh, watching it, I'm just relishing the restaurants as I have with all of these films, the restaurants I wish I was eating at, like these characters, the hotels, the hotels I wish I was staying at, the sites that I wish I was seeing, especially right now, of course. And with all of that, it's just very funny. The first 10 minutes are actually available online over at YouTube. I'll link to it in our show notes. And just even in that opening, it gives you everything that is so good about this series. Contemplation of mortality and aging and them taking jabs at each other. And what I always appreciate most about Coogan and Bride in these films, when they make each other laugh. It also includes a callback to the Michael Parkinson impression from the trip to Italy, the second film, which was my number one trip series scene. It doesn't help that we're under a tree. Insects love to be under trees. Yeah, actually, Do you know I went, why? I went out on my land recently. Yeah. Uh, to sit under a tree. 36 acres, isn't it? 38. And I went to sit under a tree just to... To think. To, well, just no, to think. No, no, to read a book, actually. I put a blanket down just because, you know, there's a tree. And I sat under it and um, started to read. And, and loads of flies started hovering over my head. That'll so, happen, yeah. So I just got up and just went back in the house. I had this idea that it Steve was, uh, Coogan, ladies and gentlemen, wonderful stories from Steve. Um, <laughs> and there'll be more from him at the same time next week. You must do that one about the flies under the, uh, under the tree. I mean, it's wonderful stuff. Friend said he saw him. The trip to Greece can be rented on Amazon Prime, Google Play, YouTube, and I'm sure other platforms. 
yeah, I had fun with this as well. You know, it's it was it was comfort food. I think I described it as especially where we found ourselves when this was available on mm-hmm. VOD. So I'm I'm not going to complain that that you've got on your top five, Adam. Might be a little high there too, but that's that's all right. I'll oh, let well. it go. <laughs> All right, my number one then, and I'm wondering if we're going to have a tie here, uh, is First Cow. Kelly Reichert's period drama came out pre-COVID-19, Adam, and how I would love, similar to your wishing you could jump into the trip to Greece, how I'd love to return to that cozy little shack in the woods where John Majaro's cookie and Orion Lee's King Lou share quiet conversation while making oily cakes story of a simpler time, which I first saw, it feels like now, in a simpler time. Of course, all that simplicity is an illusion. That's something Reichert's movie, that's what it's really all about, right? How this, quote, land of abundance and land of riches, those lines are both used in the film. How Oregon in the early 1800s wasn't really that. It had its limits. Uh, And the plunder that takes place, both on a small scale, stealing milk to make those cakes, and on a large scale, the colonialist military fort that's laid claim to the territory, all of that ultimately turns First Cow into a tragedy. So it's it's not necessarily this cozy little film I remember, especially in the way it ends. Now, aesthetically, this was very much a return to Meek's cutoff form for Reichert. It's a Literally, recreation. Literally, the aspect ratio. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's one element she uses. A recreation of history that's pretty much out of tactile touches, sensory details. I think of squelching mud, I think of squealing pigs, and yeah, I think of that 4-3 aspect ratio, which it kind of does the opposite of what a period film in the wilderness you would expect to do. It negates grand landscapes in favor Mm -hmm. of really everyday weeds. Um, The movie has a mundane beauty to it, and, and I love it for that. Now, I also consider Meeks to be a masterpiece, so really no surprise that First Cow, at least at this point in the year, is my favorite film of 2020. I know that many listeners didn't get a chance to see it before the pandemic shut down theaters. It was at that point just in the early stages of a very limited release. And given the uncertainty that still exists around theaters, distributor A24 recently announced that they're going to make the film available for purchase on VOD July 10, and then you can rent it on July 21. So Mm. highly encourage you to check it out if you didn't get a chance to see it via one of those avenues. I know they were considering re-releasing the movie in theaters, I think being hopeful that we would get through this crisis and get back to some sense of normalcy sooner rather than later, as that is not the case. I'm really glad now that if we can't see it in theaters, at least all the people listening who heard our glowing review of this movie way back when now can finally seek it out. And you mentioned the mundane beauty And I'm completely just riffing off the top of my head here, Josh, so this makes no sense. Reichert is definitely a filmmaker. She makes these films that are set almost solely in the Pacific Northwest. They include a lot of nature shots. And yet she'd be somewhere in between, say, someone who adores nature, largely like Terrence Malick, Mm -hmm. and someone like Werner Herzog, who's always showing the brutality (laughs) of nature. She sits right in the middle. She has a very level-headed but keen sense of what nature really is. And... It's beautiful at times, and it literally gives you life in so many ways, and you can rely on the land, but you can also rely on hardship. And at the end of the day, she is way more concerned with the people and the faces than she is fetishizing the landscape. And that's what you see here. It's what you see in Meek's cutoff as well. The 4-3 aspect ratio really does give you a sense in that more vertical frame, the sense of 
the trees being imposing in the frame because it's emphasizing their tallness. But at the same time, you're really focused on those great actors' faces. And John Majaro's performance is still my favorite of the year so far. I really think Orion Lee is fantastic as well. And it's just this subtle but beautiful and ugly parable about the consequences of capitalism. It feels it feels timeless, and to use the cliche, it feels timely. It feels like a movie that you could watch in any year and see allusions to everything our country is currently facing, at least in terms of some of these moral compromises. I'll use that phrase again, just as I did talking about blow the man down, and I think it applies to the assistant. It runs through a lot of these picks that we're mentioning, and along those lines, it only occurred to me here at the last minute that... All of my choices are really about a lot of things, but fundamentally, they're about friends. This is such a great movie about friendship, which has always been a common theme that has run throughout Kelly Reichert's work, that great relationship that you touched on between King Lou and Cookie in this film. Yeah, and going back to your thoughts about uh, how she films nature, she's just not distracted by it. I think think that's what Mm -hmm. it is, and this runs throughout her film. She recognizes it, acknowledges it, and will give it its moment here and there in her movies. Um, but it doesn't overtake the human story that that is really her core interest. Yeah. History hasn't gotten here yet is still mm. maybe the line of the year <laughs> for me that King Lou speaks. Those are our top five films of the year so far. A little bit of overlap there, certainly at number one. Before we get to listener poll feedback. Josh, do you have any others that haven't come up you want to give some love to? Well, I I was disappointed that uh, Fire Saga did not make your list, Adam, (laughs) but in all honesty, I did watch it. Didn't make mine either, the new Will Ferrell comedy, but I want to just praise Rachel McAdams in it. She's probably the best thing. I would say this is middling Will Ferrell overall, um, but I love that she got a chance to be really co-star, equal co-star with him as these Icelandic uh, childhood friends who have this dream of making it in the Eurovision Song Contest. She's really great. So is Dan Stevens, actually a surprise as this Russian contestant. Um, Invisible Man, uh, I think we're both big fans of. Adam, that's uh, in my top 10 at this point. I mean, all hail Rachel McAdams, all hail Elizabeth Moss in Invisible Man. She's just fantastic. And director Lee Winnell doing some really interesting work there also. The Five Bloods, um, you know, it's, it's as uneven as any Spike Lee movie, um, I would say the same of Delroy Lindo's acclaimed performance, but man, does it have some highs. And I would include Lindo's direct address monologue as the highest of those highs. Um, Shirley, I caught up with Shirley, Adam, the Josephine Decker film. Mm -hmm. I'm a little higher on it than you are. Um, It worked better for me than Madeline's Madeline. We were both a bit flummoxed by that one. Uh, there's there's a little bit of more clarity for me here. And at the same time, it's still this brazenly impressionistic piece of filmmaking. So um, very excited about uh, Josephine Decker. I know she's made a number of films now, but can just see a little bit of progression or at least ways for me to enter into her filmmaking with Shirley. Um, and I'll round out my honorable mentions with two Golden Brick nominees we did at the top talk about how strong they have been this year. And, and maybe it's a fact of just getting to see more of them. Blow the man down. Your pick, Adam. I loved as well. And then one more, The Vast of Night. Vast of Night still on my to see list. I did also really appreciate The Invisible Man. You are correct. I think Emma is definitely worth seeing starring Anya Taylor-Joy. And I recently caught up with Rewind, which is available on Amazon Prime, which is about a man 
who I believe is about 30 years old at the point he's making the film. And through largely the copious amounts of home movie footage, his father shot investigates the sexual abuse he suffered at the hands of, I'll say, people very close to him who were not either his mother or father. And I will let the revelations of the film reveal themselves to you as you get a chance to see this movie. It's called Rewind on Amazon Prime. You mentioned De Five Bloods, Josh, a film that did very well in our poll results. We gave our listeners these options for best film of the year so far, and you really have heard every one of them named so far. The Assistant, De Five Bloods, First Cow, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, The Invisible Man, or they could write in other. How did the results shake out? Well, as you mentioned earlier, Adam, The Assistant did place last with 7%. Kelly Reichert's First Cow got 10%, which honestly, given how little chance people had to see it, I'm surprised it even uh, placed that well. 10% again of the vote there. Eliza Hittman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always received 18% of the vote. Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss at 19%. Other category got 20% of the vote. I'm sure we'll hear some feedback with the choices there. And yeah, Spike Lee's Defy Bloods, 26% of the vote. Totally makes sense to me. Um, I mean, there's a practical element to this. It was widely available on Netflix. It came out just a couple of weeks ago. But man, Mm -hmm. if you resonate with um, the sort of righteous anger that is percolating through that film at all and the way it's reverberating with the righteous anger in society at large right now, I don't blame anyone for saying (laughs) this is my favorite film of the year just because of our current circumstances. So, yeah. Kind of love seeing Spike Lee at the top of this poll. Yeah, I will certainly never argue with seeing Spike Lee at the top of any poll, even if I don't feel that way about this movie. I think my mixed reaction to it and my letterbox review has been a little bit of a home for some of those people who have heard all that acclaim and watched the movie and thought, really, this is the this is the film that everyone's going crazy for. They just didn't quite have the same reaction to it that so many people have. And I'm happy to be that even as it's a movie, I think people really need to see, which is true of all of Spike's films. Michael sent us this feedback. He said, I rarely go with other, but with this question, I had no choice. Within the first few moments of The Vast of Night, I knew I was in for a special experience. Sure, the story is rather conventional for a sci-fi flick, but the way the camera sweeps through dark rural streets or focuses intensely on the actors during monologues made this a thrilling viewing. I hope to see more from first-time director Andrew Patterson. Yeah, I agree, Michael. That that opening is really something. Trani Dobbs also weighed in here. While I still have a handful of 2020 films I've yet to see, I have to give the top honor thus far to Beanpole. In the desolate setting of post-World War II Leningrad, Kantemir Balagov gives a rare feminine perspective on the challenges to the bodies and the psyches of the survivors who must trudge on following the widespread conflict. While there's lots of gloom and only a few crumbs of hope, the true beauty of Beanpole is that it doesn't rely heavily on either to tell its story. Instead, it embraces the confusion and complexity of its primary characters and gives its attention to their unique battle scars. The cinematography is exquisite, the sound work top-notch, and the performances are truly inspired. And at the bare minimum, Beanpole has at least two contenders for scene of the year and should be considered for the Golden Brick shortlist. Boy, I wish I could be on board with Trani. I did give Beanpole a try, and uh, the gloom is very heavy in that film. It, it hmm. For me, it kind of um, turned over towards miserableism, I would say. But there is uh, a much wiser person who's a huge fan of this movie, Scott Tobias, our friend, over at the Next Picture Show. So there are definitely a lot of supporters of Beanpole. 
oppressively gloomy was my sense of the film just based on its description. I think I said that at the time it came out and it's totally unfair to it, but I wasn't ready then to experience that and I wasn't quite ready to experience it before doing this top five, but I promise that I won't overlook it before the end of the year. Our final bit of feedback here, a vote for First Cow. And Josh, I want you to be the one to tell Patricia O'Shea in Oxford, UK, that she's not allowed to do this. She voted for First Cow, despite the fact, she writes, that I haven't seen it and can't at the moment because I'm in the UK and it's not here yet. I know that it's against the rules and I don't care. I'm a senior, 71 years, so allowed to break the rules. I recently completed a master's in film studies in Oxford. My dissertation was on the films of Kelly Reichert, so I'm as certain as I can be that her new feature will certainly be my best of the year. I can't wait to confirm my prediction when I actually see it. (laughs) Well, I respect my elders, Adam, so Patricia can do whatever she wants. Thank you, Patricia. I look forward to maybe someday checking out that dissertation. Maybe we can be enlightened on the work of one of our favorite filmmakers, Kelly Reichert. Again, those are our top five films and yours of the year so far. You can send any other picks or other feedback to feedback at filmspotting.net, and you can find the full list of our favorite movies of the year over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists at the top of the page. We'll hear from more listeners when we come back with feedback on our recent Jaws Spielberg retrospective show. Then if you hear Edith Piaf playing, that means it's time for our look at Christopher Nolan's Inception. Stay with us. Hey guys, this is Jared Young from Ottawa, Canada. Uh, Like a lot of people, I've seen Jaws more times than I can count, and it really is one of the most rewatchable movies ever made. There's so much in each cut and camera movement and line of dialogue. But I gotta say, your recent revisit of the film, especially what you had to say about Martin Brody, really blew my mind. And when I rewatched Jaws just the other night, it was like I was seeing it for the very first time. Turns out that Jaws isn't a movie about a giant man-eating Carcharodon Carcarius like I thought it was, but actually the story of a man in a position of privilege and authority who's afraid to stand up against the conventional wisdom, even when he suspects that the conventional wisdom is dangerously wrong. And if that's not relevant right now, especially to me, I don't know what is. I think when people watch Jaws, they either want to be Quint, the tough guy loner, cruising around on his cool shark boat, Or else they want to be Hooper, the know-it-all fanboy with all the expensive toys. I think most people in reality are Martin Brody, caught in the middle of two hard choices. And they know that the hardest one to make is the right one to make. And I guess the lesson is, as scary as it might be, sometimes to do the right thing, you got to sail out into shark-infested waters with a demented fisherman and a half-assed astronaut. Like I said, I've seen Jaws a hundred times, but I've never seen Jaws like that before. And now it feels like the only way to see Jaws. 
And what a cool thing to get a new and really necessary perspective on something so familiar to me. So I just wanted to say thanks to you guys. And if I had to rank areas of film spotting, I think I'd put these last few months of COVID episodes right at number one. Thank you, Jared, for that. Jared, someone I've had a few fun nights with in Ottawa, at least a couple. Josh, always nice to hang out with film spotting listeners. We got that nice voicemail, that thoughtful voicemail in response to our Sacred Cow review of Spielberg's Jaws celebrating its 45th anniversary. Along with that review, we power ranked the five decades of Spielberg's directing career. It was a surprise to us, I think, both how much that movie resonated with us personally, how relevant it seemed now, 45 years later, which I don't know that either of us really would have counted on before we rewatched it. And it's really great to hear that Jared had a similarly insightful experience prompted, at least in part, by our conversation. Yeah, I'm glad it resonated with him. That was probably one of the more fun reviews for me that we've done in quite a while. So that's good to hear. We did get some listener feedback that just being totally honest, we forgot to include in that show feedback that we received in response to our recent Spielberg theme poll where we asked you to pick the best Spielberg decade. We will get to that feedback in just a little bit. But first, we have some housekeeping to do. Yes, indeed. It was my favorite review we've done in a while, but that doesn't mean it was perfect, Adam. Uh, I, I know. Had, I had a, a little mistake in there, and I heard about it. I got this email from Stephen Acampora. Josh, did you even watch Jaws? Dog's name. Pippet, not Pippin. The kid asking his mom to go back in the water is the Kittner boy. The dude with Pippet is not poor Alex. Sigh, my faith has been shaken. More attention to detail, less about diopter shots. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, think, I think that's a shot of you, Adam. You were going on about yeah, the diopter. I was the diopter guy. <laughs> uh, but no, St- Stephen is right in, in trying to like talk about how in that famous sequence, the attack, there are so many stories going on. I did mix mm-hmm. up um, Alex with the older boy who does have the dog. Dog. Though, as I told Stephen when I emailed him back, Adam Pippet, I mean, who names their dog Pippet? All right. That's seriously. That's just kind of dumb. Right. Well, of course, it wasn't perfect for me either. I feel dumb because I too heard the name Pippin, not Pippet, and even made a comment about how it made me think about Bob Fosse <laughs> and Pippin and Roy Scheider played Fosse later and all that jazz. So I was off there. I do want to say, just like you just let me go. A few weeks ago, when I made a mistake talking about the Five Bloods, the moment you started talking about that kid we meet early in that sequence and all the individual stories that are told just by these interactions, I almost interrupted you and said, "Well, yeah, that's Alex. Yeah, you should. Alex, you should have." And you know what? I just gave you the benefit of the doubt, as I should. I thought, well, maybe Josh is just making the point that even before that character really comes into play and is a major character in the movie that we feel like we know him just from that introduction, which fit with your larger point that right. you were, of course, making. I thought maybe you were making the point that whether he factors in or not, we know him and we kind of know everything we need to know about him. I let you go. I let yeah. you go and didn't correct you. It was just a plain old mix-up, I'm afraid. Well, thank you, Stephen, and a few other listeners for setting us straight there. We gave away or offered to give away some new Blu-rays, Jaws, 45th anniversary editions loaded with extra features. And my goodness, Josh, do people love this movie. We got more entries for this contest than we get from most Massacre Theaters and more than I think we've gotten for any contest in the history of the show. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, people were excited about this film and excited about these discs. And I have five of them. And somehow I'm giving away all five of them instead of hanging on to one for myself. 
and giving you one. I think it's the unselfish thing to do. You're an honorable man, Adam. We're both menches, Josh. Let's go ahead and give those away then. We ask listeners simply to write in with their favorite Jaws scene. We'll share those now along with the names of our winners. Josh Basler, to start, he says Quint's introduction scene is one of my faves. Yeah, one of yours as well, right, Adam? That was in your top five Spielberg scenes. Jason Mahan from Lantana, Texas said, so many great moments, but I have to be boring and stay with Quint's speech. When I saw it as a kid, it was the first time I had heard of the Indianapolis, and the story completely transfixed me. Later, as the story was familiar, this speech lost none of its power. Great stuff. Thanks for all you do, guys. Sean Guerrero, also a winner. My favorite moment in Jaws has to be the camaraderie between Quint, Brody, and Hooper, the scene where they all bond on the boat helps us to bond with the men as well and makes the whole affair just a bit more meaningful. One of your favorite Spielberg scenes, Josh. Mm -hmm. Another winner here, Avery Ruth from Madison, Mississippi. My favorite sequence has to be the tense beach scene that was dissected in last week's show. I was anticipating the iconic zoom slash dolly shot that I had seen and heard about many times throughout my life, but I was delighted to watch all the moments leading up to that shot. The tension builds, and we watch Brody sit in terror as Verna Fields editing puts us in the same mindset as Brody. Pure cinema, and I loved it. Finally, Ann Barry says, There are so many scenes and moments that are perfect in Jaws, and it truly is the sum of its parts that makes it so great. But I love the speech Hooper gives to the mayor about sharks and the real threat they pose. It's just such a righteous series of explanations, and I love how Hooper gets more and more frustrated, and the camera zooms in just bit by bit, keying in on the three characters. It may not be a scene where a lot of filmmaking craft is on display, but the writing and performances shine. Congratulations to all five of our winners. To our losers, I'm sorry. I wish you all could have a disc. I wish I had a disc, but maybe we'll have another contest here in the near future. Josh, to our winners, email us feedback at filmspotting.net with your address, and we will get those discs in the mail to you. On that Spielberg show, we shared the results of our Spielberg poll, which asked listeners to choose their favorite decade of the director's career. What we did somehow forget to do was share any poll comments, which is part of our ritual here on Film Spotting, and there was a ton. We're not going to be able to get to all of it, certainly, but we do want to highlight some of the best. In that poll, the 80s came out way on top. Not a surprise, right, Josh? 40% of the vote. The 70s and 90s were pretty much neck and neck, about 25% of the vote each. The 90s did ultimately take second, in sharp contrast to us. More on that in a moment. Rounding out the bottom, the 2000s, then the 2010s, which managed seven total votes. And it's impossible to know how many of those may have been made in error. (laughs) Our own power rankings, quickly, to recap, we both had the 80s, 70s, and 2000s in that order. Yes. As his best. So the 80s at number one, followed by the 70s, the 2000s. I had the 90s as his fourth best, and the 2010s in last. You just switched those last two spots. You had the 2010s at fourth, and the 90s, the beloved 90s Mm -hmm. to at least a quarter of our listeners in last place. How dare you, sir? Well, and really more evidence that when you were born and when you first encountered Spielberg's films at a young age is probably how you're going to vote in a poll like this. Yeah. And we are children of the 80s, so I guess it makes sense. Kyle wrote, this poll is a bit sneaky because the right answer doesn't reveal itself until after a full 45 minutes pondering the very nature of film itself. Mm, indeed, Kyle. Here's deep. Here's Reese Pie from the UK. This is like James Bond or Doctor Who, isn't it? The one you saw first will always be your favorite. Showing my age here, but I chose the 70s. Jaws scared the bejesus out of me at the time, and Close Encounters amazed me. Formative years. Cortland Funk says, is this even a question? 
Anyone who would rid the world of E.T. in the Indiana Jones trilogy is a monster. He's referring to Sam Van Hogan, our producer's incinerator, where all the losers in these poll questions get put. I can respect those who feel it's a tough choice between the 70s and 80s, but after some soul searching, I think they'll know in their hearts that 80s Spielberg is the way to go. Indeed, Cortland. Here's Joshua Burwald. I sweated over this all week. Seriously, how can I choose? 80s or 90s? Both contain formative movies for me. It came down to this. Jurassic Park was the first film I ever saw in a theater, and to have to chuck that in the trash never to be seen again is just too devastating a thought. Yeah, Josh was hearing that song. He's seeing the gigantic dinosaur walk across the screen for the first time that Sam Neill looks at. I get it. Nostalgia's powerful. Brooke Favre says, You monsters. There's so much history in this poll, but I chose the 90s. The 70s were a close second, but my nostalgia got the better of me because I experienced that decade in real time. Sitting in the theater, watching Saving Private Ryan was surreal, and I'll never forget how my dad put the bucket of popcorn down for the first time and took everything in. It was a wonderful experience. We left the theater wondering if anything better could ever top it. Hmm. And I respect Brooke's choice because she had 70s second. I mean, that shows she knows the films, too, but is still allowing nostalgia maybe to win out on top there. Mm -hmm. Taylor Cole here in Chicago has a vote for the 2000s. A world without Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can is not a world I want to return to. If it meant keeping those two movies alive, I would stay sheltered in place forever. <laughs> Lisa says, while, of course, every decade has yielded treasures beyond compare, I'm going for the 2010s mm. because it has shown us that Spielberg's mastery, we found one of the seven, <laughs> the magnificent seven. <laughs> Spielberg's mastery continues to dazzle and delight. Given how the world has changed and invited a whole new, dare I say, whole nother level of it was so much better when my vote for his most recent decade of work is a vote for the future in general and film specifically. Here's to believing the best is yet to come. Wow, I love Lisa's positivity there. Here's Susan Thompson from Phoenix. Susan is a family member on Patreon, passionate listener, and grouch poll taker, apparently. Yeah, Sam does that to you. I get it. I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary listening to Film Spotting, devouring archives like mad, and I'm certain this is the cruelest poll ever. So many have already expressed tactfully, ruefully, and satirically their reasons for choosing their decade. I can agree with them all. But I choose the 70s because Jaws is still the only Spielberg movie that, if it is plain and I catch it, I am its hostage until the end. Makes sense. Jody Kujawa closes out our poll feedback writing, A World Without Jaws? What kind of monster would let that happen? I'll tell you who. The same kind of monster that would reopen Jurassic Park. I, I think that applies to Sam. First off, Jaws was the dawn of the summer blockbuster. If it never gets made, do any of the other Spielberg blockbusters ever get made or have the same cultural significance? If Jaws doesn't exist, do sharks just become another aquatic creature that we don't have any overwhelming fear of? <laughs> Does Shark Week ever happen? Is there one less majestic beast for children to be in awe of? Does this poll question exist? Okay. Wow. My mind is blown. Do you, this is like Inception. Do you exist, Adam? Do I exist? <laughs> That's right. We need Jaws, Jody writes, like we need the air we breathe, like we need water and the touch of others. When future generations look back for something to define our era, one thing will resonate above all else. Jaws. There will be books. I should have like Patton's music behind me. I need a flag. There will be books written and scientific arguments about whether or not human beings were capable of creating something as perfect as Jaws or if there was alien intervention. Imagine a father who has lived a good deal of his life waiting for a child to share this wonderful film with. Imagine the delight of that child seeing Jaws for the first time and dreaming of the time when they can share it with their children. Now imagine taking that away. Does that feel good? No, it does not because you are not a monster. Do the right thing. 70s Spielberg, 
needs to be preserved. Wow. What, what a reasonable, grounded, and not at all unhinged <laughs> argument, Adam. Thank you, Jody. Not at all overly melodramatic. No, no. I love it. Okay, so we do have one more bit of feedback to share, Josh. Jake Meltzer, he's in Las Vegas, and this isn't poll feedback, but it's in response to our power ranking of the decades and something heretical, shocker, that you said. Actually, we both said it. You just may be a little bit more extreme than me, and this relates to our praise, our praise of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Adam. Clearly, clearly we know who's the real fan. Whatever. <laughs> All right, here's Jake. You guys brought up the Star Wars prequels as a point of comparison. Revenge of the Sith, an actual good film, is the godfather by comparison. And it even makes Phantom Menace look like an Oscar-caliber movie. Hey, no argument for me, Jake. I might even give a slight edge to Attack of the Clones, by far my least favorite Star Wars movie over Crystal Skull. I have no issues with the rest of your Spielberg picks, even if my rankings are slightly different. But giving a pass to Crystal Skull is a take as nuclear as that damn fridge— to quote my favorite final line of any movie, while nobody's perfect. Yeah, we have definitely proven that over the years of doing this show. And yeah, I think we said it's pretty good. It's for me still very much mid to bottom tier Spielberg, like somewhere right, around don't start back 15 to 20. Now. Don't wilt I'm under just the saying, pressure. <laughs> I am just saying I gave it a positive review. <laughs> I stand by that positive review. But you have it like... In his top 10 or 12, don't you? Um, Yeah, I, I think it's top tier. It's top tier. Spielberg. And listen. Top tier? People. What tier? Get over the freaking fridge. I mean, this is like, we might get into this with Inception. I like the fridge. But how many people are so obsessed with the skiing sequence in Inception, right? Like that just negates every other brilliant thing. Yeah, it's it's probably unnecessary. It's not expertly filmed. Again, we might get into this, but people just latch onto that. The ski sequence in Inception, the fridge in Crystal Skull. Give it up. Lighten up. Appreciate you know what? All the greatness that's going on around those things. I like your impassioned plea. I feel like we need the patent music for that <laughs> Thank too. You. Thank you. I like the fridge. Better than the ski sequence in Inception. Bold. I'll Bold. go that far. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to everyone who commented on the top five, even listeners like Jake, who are utterly incredulous now. There was so much great stuff. Next week on the show, remember our 8 from 84 series? Mm, we what's did, that? What is that? Yeah, we did talk about Gremlins versus Ghostbusters oh, back in May. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. It's coming back, right? John Carpenter's Starman. Mm -hmm. We had an 84 rock trio of Purple Rain, Stop Making Sense, and this is Spinal Tap. Oh, I remember Purple Rain. Of course you do. You never forget Purple Rain. No, once still you, recovering. Once you have it. <laughs> next week, we will get to the next one in our series, Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. It's set in the 1930s at the famed Harlem Jazz Club. Gregory Hines stars, along with Lawrence Fishburne, Diane Lane, Nicolas Cage, Bob Hoskins, Richard Gere in that ensemble. And we have decided, even though it cuts you to your core mm. to violate this principle, mm -hmm. we're not going to watch the original cut. We're going to watch the Encore Edition, which was just released last year, and here's why. I think this is finally a time we should listen to longtime film spotting friend and contributor Michael Phillips, who said everything about it flows and pays off better than the 84 original. Let's, let's give it a shot. Let's give the Cotton Club the shot it deserves and watch the encore. I like how you describe that as if it's the first time we're going to ever listen to Michael Phillips. Like now, pretty much on this, pretty much, we'll, right? We'll listen to what he has to say. Um, yeah, 
you know, you know, I love the historical record. Ideally, I would I would fit in both in the next like five days. But it's also for me, I think, a matter of availability. The Cotton Club Encore, you can stream through a number of services. From what I could tell, a little harder to get to the original Cotton Club. And with my beloved library service shut down, I'm kind of out of luck. So so, yeah. I agree. We'll do the Cotton Club Encore. Can I just say, I knew very little about this movie other than its general subject matter and that it was Coppola. Reading that cast, I am so excited because mm. not only are there is there a lot of talent there, but what a bizarre combination of people. Like for, from Lawrence Fishburne to Richard Gere, they, you know, those two just don't compute in the same movie. Gregory Hines, Bob Hoskins, and then you throw in Nicolas Cage on top of that. I'm really excited to finally see the Cotton Club. Yeah, I am too. Now, Josh, I did just Google this, and over on Amazon, there's a paperback book from 94 called The Cotton Club. <laughs> I don't think it's the source material, but I no. do think you should read it as you do your homework. <laughs> yeah, I and you know, to be fair, I could order the DVD, purchase it for Amazon, but you know. You could. I don't think I'm gonna. Okay. Our new film spotting poll has us looking ahead to that discussion of The Cotton Club, and we're asking you simply, what is the best film about jazz or jazz musicians? We came up with these choices. Vincent Minnelli's Cabin in the Sky, which was part of our Minnelli Marathon that we did back in 2018. The Cotton Club itself, Damien Chazelle's La La Land, Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, and then Round Midnight. This is from 1986, and it is about jazz saxophonist Dexter Gordon, the music there composed by Herbie Hancock. Another option is Woody Allen's Sweet and Lowdown, and then another Damien Chazelle film, Whiplash. We will give you the option of Other and some titles that come to mind that you might be considering in that category. Clint Eastwood's Bird, that stars Forrest Whitaker's Charlie Parker, or Born to be Blue. Ethan Hawke there is Chet Baker. Adam, that was your number eight movie of 2016. This poll's tough because there maybe hasn't been a truly great jazz movie that's been made. And I know some people would say it's Round Midnight, that film from 86, music composed by Herbie Hancock, a graduate of my beloved alma mater, Grinnell College. And I think I even saw Round Midnight at Grinnell after it had been introduced by Herbie Hancock. And I'm a longtime jazz fan, and I was definitely in a jazz phase at that time, and I was underwhelmed by it. So that's not going to be the choice for me. It's one I probably should revisit at some point. There's other titles there that are definitely films I appreciate, but I think it was Howard Reich, maybe writing for the Chicago Tribune, reviewed The Eddie recently, Damien Chazelle's series on Netflix, which I have only watched the first episode of. And it was overall a very positive review, and it kind of gave this brief history of, of jazz movies on screen. And that was kind of his take that, you know, you've got films like Whiplash, which a lot of people consider completely hysterical and not quote unquote accurate in terms of really grasping what being a jazz student would be like or an aspiring jazz star, if you will. La La Land, of course, often criticized because it's the white guy, Ryan Gosling, who's there to save jazz. So they all they all kind of have their issues, Josh. Is there one of those films that stands out to you as the best? Yeah, I mean, you're you're on point there with La La Land because it's by far the movie I like the most on this list. But I would say the jazz element of it is maybe its weakest element for, for exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it, you stick John Legend with possibly the worst song in the movie and kind of present him as the faux jazz artist and Ryan Gosling as the true you know, the real deal, you know, that, that struck me as a little off the first time I saw La La Land, even though otherwise I love the film. So you might be right that there isn't a truly great jazz film. It might just be that I don't have the chops to, to really say. So I'd like to watch some of these that I haven't seen yet and see if one of them might jump to the front. Hmm. 
he even had a knock in passing at Born to be Blue, which, as you said, was my number eight movie of 2016. That's probably my pick here, though I have come to really appreciate, after seeing it for the first time and being disappointed many, many years ago, Woody Allen's Sweet and Low Down. And I've told the story before, but that's the movie that I saw here in Chicago at Piper's Alley. I was visiting, didn't live in Chicago at the time. I think it was over New Year's that I saw the film, and I was so disgruntled and disappointed with Sean Penn's guitar picking, which seems so clearly to me not actually mimicking the notes that were being played at all, that I wrote in a disgruntled fashion to one Roger Ebert and told him <laughs> that he shouldn't have been so positive about the movie because the, ja- <laughs> the jazz playing was just so inaccurate. And he wrote me back a very nice response. Did actually. he really? Yeah, he did. He said, you know what? I'm not a jazz musician, basically. Uh, So I don't care. I thought he was going to say, try to be more pedantic in the future and and you'll go somewhere, young man. That's how you'd respond (laughs) and how Roger should have responded. But he was more gracious. (laughs) We want to know what you think the best movie about jazz or jazz musicians is. You can vote now over at filmspotting.net. We did want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing earlier this week of 98-year-old Carl Reiner, probably and a little bit sadly known to most people listening, including to us, I would say, as Saul Bloom in the Oceans movies. But he directed The Jerk, which I loved as a kid and probably would still love. Another Steve Martin movie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and The Man with Two Brains, All of Me. So a real run with Steve Martin there and also Summer School. Yeah, I watched the hell out of some Mark Harmon in Summer School back in the mid 80s. And he had a long career in TV, including as the creator of The Dick Van Dyke Show, a lifelong friend of Mel Brooks. I do recommend people watch that documentary. The name of it's slipping me right now, Josh. Maybe if you vamp, I can look it up. But they made a documentary about their friendship, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner on HBO a few years back that was really entertaining. Yeah, I did not see that, but I saw the episode of Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee with, uh, you know, the Jerry Seinfeld short series where those two were featured in one episode. And, you know, of course, the wit was on display, but the friendship was at the forefront and it was really touching. Speaking of not really having a full understanding of what Reiner did. Yeah, I did know him as Saul Bloom. I had an understanding of his TV work as well, just a general one, but did not realize he had directed those films, The Jerk and other Steve Martin films. So obviously an enormous career that I've only been faintly aware of. It's been fascinating to learn about all the things that he did. Yeah. And for a lot of older listeners, they would think of the 2000 year old man, the famous comedy bit with Brooks and Carl Reiner. And that is something that that HBO series really gets into. It's called Mel Brooks Unwrapped, if I am looking at the right thing here, Josh. It is a look back at Mel Brooks specifically, but devotes a fair amount of time to that professional relationship and that personal relationship. They were very dear friends. So RIP Carl Reiner. Mark Harris said this on Twitter, a comedy genius who gave us the Dick Van Dyke show, a delightful democratic Twitter firebrand and droll philosopher to the last day of his 98 years and a man who clearly knew how to live right. I miss him already. All right, a quick note here for our fellow podcasters at The Next Picture Show. They are, right now, 
doing part two of their Price of Gold double feature. So Spike Lee's new To Five Bloods is what they're discussing this week. They've paired it up with John Huston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, one of the two films heavily referenced. We discussed this, Adam, in our review of To Five Bloods, along with Apocalypse Now and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, an all-time classic. So I can't wait to listen to this one. Uh, Spike Lee is one of those filmmakers that you want to listen to as many takes as possible on his latest film. I think it's fair to say um, I really enjoyed Aisha Harris and Dana Stevens doing the slate spoiler special on to five bloods. And now I can't wait to dig into the next picture shows take on it along with the treasure of the Sierra Madre. You can listen to the next picture show every Tuesday when new episodes drop wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. We did want to say thanks to everyone who supports Film Spotting by being a family member over on Patreon. By supporting us, you get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, live show pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, and monthly bonus episodes. We did just post our monthly bonus video episodes for the first time we did our criterion closets and one of us i won't say who gave some real attention to the criterion collection that they have and the ones they'd like to have and some recommendations that are available for streaming over at criterionchannel.com another of us kind of did his mtv cribs impression <laughs> Is that what it was? Yeah, I guess. It felt like it to me. I didn't really realize that. Well, it's a peek behind the scenes. What do you want? Look at a boring bookshelf or, you know, get a little view of what's going on here. Actually, I hear you. I, I was in the same room that I'm recording in now as those who have already seen that video. I talk about the closet, the literal closet since we moved that is now serving as the film spotting recording studio. So, yeah, that was different, I think, for both of us. I think my single take video was performance was a little beneath what Sidney Flanagan pulls off in Never Rarely, Sometimes Always in in the scene. But I think it was close, Adam. If I had a little rehearsal, maybe one or two other takes, I could have gotten there. Mm. Well, with my cinematographer and co-director, Sophie Kempinar, um, we were a little bit more Kubrickian in our approach. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm not going to tell you how long that 10-minute video took to shoot and edit. Oh, no. I'm I'm a little bit neurotic when it comes to stuff like that. So, yeah, let's just leave it at that. Let's just leave it at that. But I'm proud of how it came out. Mm, the response yeah. to both of our videos has it been great. wonderfully positive. And if you're one of those listeners who really thinks it would be enlightening to get a peek behind the curtain, see the spaces where we record the show, see some of the knickknacks that at least I've accumulated over the years sent in so graciously by Film Spotting listeners, and see the movies of the Criterion Collection we own, You can do that just by being a family member. You know, I thought Sophie did a great job. And if after having to put up with your diva behavior and Kubrickian attitude, she has since Uh run away from home, I don't blame her at all. (laughs) No, that's not going to happen because she's even more neurotic than I am. Oh, she's Kubrick. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) I mean, it's it's equal parts. We're sharing a Kubrickian brain, which, as you can imagine, is wonderful for my wife and the rest of the household. (laughs) I will also point this out. This will be much to the pleasure of some of our listeners. There was a little bit of confusion. I did acknowledge it in the video, but I think people didn't hear it or overlooked it. They were so mesmerized by the camera work, I think, that I usually just put my criterions in with all my other movies. I separate my Blu-rays and my DVDs, but otherwise I just put them all together 
alphabetically. Okay. For the sake of shooting this, I took everything off the first two shelves except the criterions. I just stacked them all together and I kind of structured them based on theme, really just so I could talk about them in different groups, right? Mm -hmm. And I think some people- I'm already starting to see why this was a four-week shoot. Yeah, exactly. I think some people were confused and chagrined that I would just have them in some kind of random thematic order. So again, not the case, usually alphabetically, but some family members were even more chagrined that I didn't put them in spine order, Yes, that I didn't separate out the criterions and put them together. And you know what? I decided when I put all those movies back on my shelf, I reorganized and I now have one and three quarters shelves devoted to my criterion collection in spine order. And it's working for me, Josh. It's working. See, we've all learned something along the way. We have. (laughs) Patreon.com slash filmspotting is where you can sign up and get that scintillating bonus content. (laughs) Over the past month or so of shows, I've been trying to give family members an extra bit of love, give them a shout out here on the show. And it's now, especially with a week off, so overwhelming. We have so many names to feature. We're going to have to come up with a new method Mm. because it just takes too long, frankly, to gather them all. I'm open to any suggestions from family members or our listeners. We definitely want to give you all the love you deserve. That said, we have a couple names we want to single out, and these are actually listeners who are still using the old PayPal system, Josh, still donating to the show, but maybe they don't think that $5 donation is quite enough, and we want to give them some love as well, starting with Joshua Bell, Balnaring, Balnaring, Victoria, Australia, he sent us a very generous donation that included this note. Like the rest of the world, Australia is facing a new normal where going to the cinema is not currently what it used to be. And while it will no doubt go back to normal soon enough, the time away from something so important has made me realize that my love for cinema is not just in front of a giant screen. It is always in my life in so many ways, perhaps none larger than film spotting. My brother and I consistently send messages to each other about the latest show. During COVID-19, we have particularly enjoyed debating with each other after your Christopher Nolan episodes. My relative disdain of the overrated Inception, absolute love for the underrated Prestige, and legitimate awe at what Dunkirk achieved versus his adoration of Inception, his worthy respect of Nolan's Batman trilogy, and love for Interstellar. Hopefully by the time things start creeping back to normal in the world, we will all be sitting watching Nolan's Tenet. And as always, I look forward to listening to film spotting as soon as I can after exiting the cinema with a crowded yet socially distanced pack of cinema goers. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua. And I think based on that, Joshua and his brother need to start a podcast. Sounds like it. I'd listen to their Nolan Oove review. Tim Messer also writes in, I was introduced to your podcast by a loved one several years ago. After becoming a film spotting family member, when you launched your Patreon, I realized that $5 a month going forward was simply not sufficient to account for the amount of listening hours you've provided me over the last roughly 10 years. While theaters have been closed, past top five lists have helped me fill a number of blind spots in my film viewing. Congratulations on 15 years, and I hope for many more. Thank you, Tim, for your generous donation. We also got one from Christopher Farley. And finally, Josh, Andrew Willis. Mm -hmm. I touched on this on a fairly recent episode because we read some feedback and it said that he was from Atlanta. And Andrew Willis, to me, will always be from Vincennes, Indiana. Longtime listener. I searched it before we started recording. And I have emails from him going back, I think, to at least September of 07. Hmm. Long before... You ever even had heard of film spotting, much less 
had joined the show. So that name, Andrew Willis, has always been one familiar to myself and to Sam. And it just always goes with Vincennes, Indiana, except he lives in Atlanta, Georgia now. And he has obviously been a longtime fan of the podcast. We were really pleased to get a note and a donation from his wife, Heather, who said that Andrew's birthday is coming up July 11th. Would we give him a shout out? And of course, we will give Andrew Willis oh, yeah. from Atlanta, formerly, formerly of Vincennes, Indiana, a shout out. We appreciate how long he is stuck with the show and glad that it's part of your family. Thank you so much, Andrew, for listening and a very, very happy birthday to you. Happy birthday indeed. There's one thing you should know about me. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams? Mr. Carl has a job offer he would like to discuss with you. What kind of work placement? Not exactly. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well, it's not strictly speaking legal. That's from the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Inception, which came out almost exactly 10 years ago, July 16th, 2010. That means it arrived two years after The Dark Knight to give us some context here for our Nolan overview, which we've mostly been going through chronologically. Now, we did make an exception in the case of the Batman trilogy, jumbled things up a bit, but we're back on track here with Inception, again, which came out in 2010. It was Nolan's third highest grossing film, still is, behind The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, made $830 million globally. And maybe after The Dark Knight, it's Nolan's best loved film. One measurement here is to look at Letterboxd, where The Dark Knight and Inception come in at one and two. Now, one of the things that I mentioned was that I wanted to trace at the beginning of our Christopher Nolan overview, Adam, the evolution of his characters as human beings rather than placeholders for ideas or chess pieces that he could move around these elaborately constructed game boards. Following his first film, I think we both agreed, didn't exactly provide fully rounded characters. There were other things we liked about it. While Memento was a significant leap forward in that direction, especially considering Guy Pierce's Leonard. Still, Nolan's reputation with some as a cold filmmaker would follow him through his subsequent movies. And it had been so long since I had last seen 2010's Inception that I couldn't remember how it struck me in this regard. I certainly remembered Ellen Page's dream architect folding cities in on themselves not long after she joined Leonardo DiCaprio's team of dream thieves, these corporate spies who enter business people's dreams to steal their secrets. I also remembered Joseph Gordon-Levitt inside one of those dreams in a fistfight in a hotel hallway where gravity had disappeared. This is one of the handful of instances where Nolan relied on a practical set and effects to twist our minds. But what of the movie's emotional resonance and the human element connected to it? I wasn't sure, and this is what made me wonder, back when we were running through our tentative rankings of his films, if Inception might fall after this overview from my number two slot. Well, here's what I forgot. How good and crucial 
Marianne Cotillard is as Mal, the late wife of DiCaprio's Cobb, who appears throughout the film in those dream sequences as a projection of Cobb's subconscious. I'll make my case for her as the emotional linchpin of the film, but first I want to hear what you made of this aspect of Inception, Adam. Is this still one of your favorite Nolans? And if so, is Cotillard part of the reason for that? Hmm. Well, throughout this series, every movie we have seen has either risen in my estimation or stayed at the exact same level. And we now have a first where a movie movie dipped and Inception dipped. I don't know how it happened, but throughout this series, as you know, Josh, and I think I've referenced it during a couple of conversations, I've been battling with our producer, Sam. I call him the Nolan nitpicker, and he would totally accept that moniker. We've been going back and forth on Memento and The Prestige, which are movies in particular that he just doesn't get what all the fuss is about, even after listening to us be so insightful for so many minutes. Yeah, hard to imagine. Editing those shows, somehow, he still doesn't see what's so great about these movies, and he's constantly picking at all the open questions and all the holes in the plots and the way that Nolan seems to establish all these rules, and they don't they don't all fit together maybe as cohesively as they should in his mind, and I'm always countering this. Somehow, without me being aware... He connected me to some machine in Spring Green, Wisconsin, and he infiltrated my subconscious as I watched Inception. What is Cobb's line early in this film? He says, once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. And that idea that got planted in my mind that Sam didn't really put there was this house of cards is kind of flimsy and it's shaking under the weight of the spectacle and it almost crumbles because of a weak foundation. This is how I'm going to get to the answer to your question in a little bit of a roundabout way. If you take everything that makes a Nolan film, certainly elements and attributes that we were both aware of before we embarked on this series, but have maybe even crystallized even clearer now, the genre elements. This is a heist movie, right, at its core. The philosophizing, the preoccupation with memory and time, which is inextricable from the form of his movies, right? And their metaness. We see it in the nonlinear structures, but I think the most applicable example here, the same way in Memento, we as viewers are linked to Leonard by not being aware of how we got into each scene. Inception throws us into this bizarre, convoluted scenario immediately. And I am not exaggerating here, Josh. I didn't remember how this movie opened, and I checked the display on my Blu-ray player three times in the first seven minutes to confirm that I hadn't accidentally started the movie on a different chapter somewhere in the middle of the film. I really had thought I had done something wrong. I forgot that it opened, just dropping him on that beach, and then he's in conversations with Saito, and you have no idea kind of what's going on. So you've already stumbled into one of the brilliant things about the movie. Of course. Is, of course, is that's that it, it, right? It doubles you, down. It's a dream. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a dream within yeah. a dream at the very beginning. Within a dream. Within a dream, of course. Yeah, it's, it's no exposition. It's no introductions or setup. And a lot of sequences do start that way. It's not just the opening of the film. And yes, you said it, but it makes sense that in a movie where most characters are in a dream state most of the time, that it would play like a dream for the people watching it. And these films are all, all of Nolan's work, are artistic creations 
that are commenting on the act of creating art, and they're engaging in this dialogue with the viewer at the same time, making us confront how our day-to-day experience of life is like being in or watching a movie or vice versa. And honestly, that spiral image, which is such a key image to this movie, that's a perfect metaphor for how dizzy I get when I even try to articulate what I just expressed. And all of that is what makes Nolan's films really fun to consider, really fun to discuss, but it is a hollow experience without the humanity, which doesn't mean necessarily what you might think of, emotion, a certain sentimentality or compassion, even the kind of things that maybe get attributed to humanist filmmakers that we lump together like Capra or Ozu or Sachajit Ray. It's maybe a more cynical type of humanism, but for me, it's seeing the humanity in his characters in the form of recognizing their flaws. It's their guilt and the struggle with that guilt that we see in Will Dormer, in Bruce Wayne, in Leonard Shelby, in the rival prestige magicians. It's their grief. It's their obsessions and their their choices, usually misguided and tragic, but understandable. No matter how stylized or heightened the circumstances are, we're seeing ourselves and our conflicts and our crises reflected back to us in those obsessions and those choices. And I've connected to that humanity in every one of these Nolan films so far until Inception. Hmm. At no point, at no point was I invested in what was at stake for Dom getting back to his kids and reconciling as it were with his wife, forgiving himself and moving on with his life. And minus that investment, That spinning totem at the end, whether it falls or not, whether it's all a dream or real, it just just doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. This is the first Nolan film that didn't leave me with more questions, more exciting questions to ponder at the end. And for what it's worth, as I was preparing for this, I did go back and look at my notes from 2010, and I discovered that I felt this way originally, too. I didn't buy Maul or their relationship beyond her being one of those chess pieces you mentioned, beyond being a convenient antagonist and complication. But I was so wowed by the scope of the movie and the audacity of those multi-layered dream sequences and the technical precision and imagination of, yes, that anti-gravity hotel hallway scene in Paris folding in on itself, that I was able to dismiss that nagging idea 10 years ago. This time it spread. Wow. Adam, I love you, but you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> this is Thanks. shocking to me. I, I mean, this is kind of like a, a work that a filmmaker has been building towards. Mm-hmm. You can see all of the pieces that he's been toying with and playing with in his previous films and perfecting them technically in terms of scale, in terms of production, imagination, ideas. And I really think that the emotional element works here. What's interesting to me when you talk about having, um, you know, an idea placed in your head, I think the reason that I didn't remember uh, Inception as being this moving is because it does have those critics who call it cold and and maybe, you know, for good reasons. I, I do want to hear more about, you know, exactly why you think it didn't connect with you this way um, beyond just that it didn't. Uh, maybe people have good reasons for that. But I have heard that over the years and again, didn't revisit it. 
And so I thought, well, you know, maybe that's a missing link that I, too, should have given more credence to in 2010 um, and maybe would have judged the film more fairly. So after watching it again and just being wowed on every level by this movie, I'm not saying it's perfect. We can return to the ski chase scene in the final sequence, the final segment, but just being so thrilled by the experience of this movie again, including the emotional resonance and this this marriage at the heart of it. I went back and looked at my 2010 review, and sure enough, there I say that the supporting characters give the best performances beyond DiCaprio, and mm. that as I'd a, agree with that. As a matter of fact, that really the heart of this film is Marion Cotillard as Mal. It was something that did resonate with me at the time and um, just either faded from my memory or kind of got beat out of me by other ideas. And I guess we do have to acknowledge, and maybe this was part of the issue for you, this is another dead wife, right? And and you're, you're starting to wonder, is yes, this like is. a crutch that Nolan is landing up on? But I think when you compare her to the other figures that we've seen, even in Memento, this is a much more complicated figure. This isn't just someone you can say, this wife is dead, we move on from that, right? Like, like it's just a way to, to move the story forward or to get the story jump-started. Mal um, is much more complicated. In terms of performance, think about the challenge of this role. She's only really ever, mostly I should say, a projection of Cobbs, right? And so, you know, unless you trust his flashbacks to their time in limbo and their other time together, Cotillard has to play this projection element. That's one thing she has to do is be not Mal, but a projection of Mal, who isn't a real person. But at the same time, she's going to have to give us moments where we do sympathize with her as, yes, this is what's so fascinating, a victim of Cobbs, of the decisions, mm-hmm. all those things you were talking about in his previous films, the bad decisions due to the obsessions that his male characters have, the victims of that. That's what she is too. And I do think Cotillard gives her her own inner life that gives us a sense of that. Think of all the things that Mal is in this film. She's malevolent, as you say. And I love that about her. Like she, There's allowed to be this side where she, she is someone to fear, but she's also lovelorn. She's a partner in their dream thievery. I also love that she's not just like the wife stuck at home, but we established that she was a partner in this business with Cobb. Um, she was a partner in their marriage. And I think Cotillard gives us all of that. And ultimately, you know, she's a victim of Cobb's attempts to save her. This is the sort of thing he has to forgive himself for. But she's also a woman with her own agency and ideas. Again, if you pull out those flashbacks where she's not a projection, but we're ostensibly seeing her, and I think the performance gives us this, as her own woman. So for me, the tragic relationship between Cobb and Mala, it's kind of the center of the film. And and one more thing I'll just say about it. Again, I think tying back to the mechanics that do blow us away, that do wow us, it's directly woven into those things. I think about the totem, this whole idea about the totem, that it comes from Mal and that the spinning top is hers. So right there, that's not just like, of course it works at the end because it's hers. It it carries so much, so much emotional weight because we've learned how it's tied to her directly. It's just not a, a tchotchke that Cobb has pulled out just so he can know if he's in a dream. And then think about that opening sequence. I think this is all set up from the beginning by Nolan when Cobb uses Mal's chair as an anchor in that dream 
while repelling from the window. That captures everything about them, how they're literally tied together in ways that are romantic, in ways that are dangerous. And then the action implies, you know, just the layers of their relationship that make us curious about it. And really the rest of the movie with everything else going on is peeling back that relationship giving us the implications, what it means for Cobb within this mission that he's undergoing and comes absolutely to fruition in that final scene, which is not so much about whether he pulled off the job for Saito, but what it means for his relationship with his late wife. So I just, uh, I thought it was, it was important to me in 2010 and revisiting it, I found it to be even more important now. Yeah, what it means for that relationship to me at the end, was nothing. And I kind of alluded to this. What does the movie really leave you contemplating when it's over? The other movies that we've seen, the twist, the other movies that I've appreciated more so far, they make us rethink something about the movie, sure, about the characters and about the world. But you think about Memento and you think about Prestige and Inception here, these are films that offer some of the same kind of philosophical dilemmas that we talked about back in our bonus content on Patreon when we talked about the movie Devs, the the many worlds kind of theorizing different states of consciousness. And Inception's twist seems to me nothing more than exactly what it is. It's it's a suggestion and it's playful, but it doesn't invite any further reflection beyond is Nolan messing with us? It, it, it doesn't hit me in another way. Because it's that. not existential or philosophical. It's emotional. It's exactly the thing that you I, say that I you're I wanted lacking. it to be, but I didn't feel it. I never felt it. But and it's because it's not about these larger questions. It's about one question. But it's because Can the movie's Cobb, not. It, no, it's about one question. Can Cobb forgive himself about, for what he did with his wife? And so it's not about like how many, no how many worlds cares are about there. That. Oh my gosh, he spent half the film but I don't giving attention no cares to it. it. But why so Except much screen time to, to their relationship? Because what, he, what he's really invested in and what overwhelms those sequences and what makes them feel like plot machinations is that what he really cares about is the fancy effects. Even no, if it's practical, no, even no. if I love, even if I love Josh, how he pulls them off, it's all the time and attention he spends on that rather than making me believe in any way their relationship. Never at any point felt it. But then, Adam, why is Maul in one of the very first scenes of the film uh, for, for multiple reasons, as I described, and why is she figuratively with the spinning top the very last image we see? I mean, this is just, he, he's putting all the weight. I think part of the problem is that I agree. You're not left thinking about, well, how many worlds are there? What if we watch this movie backwards? What if, what no, if time was a construct? That's what I wanted. But, but because what, that's not what, I'm what after. Inception, why it's a progression for Nolan is because he's, he's taken all those things to get us through this this entertaining and thought-provoking and mind-blowing ride. But at the end, he's resting us with a human emotional question. Um, and am, am I going to be he's able trying. to forgive myself is uh -huh. what Cobb is asking for what, for what I've done. And am I going to choose to move forward? And then there are philosophical questions we could get into. I mean, I don't think they're missing. Josh, I get all of this intellectually. I understand that you're explaining to me the structure of the film and what Nolan wants us to feel, but there's a difference in actually feeling it. And and I didn't. I mean, you can't say it's not there. He spends a I lot of say time on it. It wasn't there for me. I understand that he devotes a lot of time to it, but it's it's minuscule in relation to the time he devotes to the tedium of the action scenes and the attention that that he devotes to those. I feel ultimately like it 
it's an emotional crutch that feels more like he's trying to give the movie a weight and a heft and a certain romanticism even that just does not seem in keeping with Nolan's strengths, at least not based on the other films that we've seen so far and the films that I've appreciated more, which, like I said, it's not because they're giving me a mind-blowing twist about, wow, how did he pull that off? They're giving me a twist that makes me think about my world and how I relate to people. And and that's what's fascinating when I have that personal connection to it. I'm just saying I never believed it here. I never did. And part of it is DiCaprio's performance, too. Mm. And I love DiCaprio. And I'm with you completely that every other supporting performer uh, does a better job. And I think part of that is the explication and the exposition. I'm now going to be the one saying the criticism that everyone else says about Interstellar that I didn't feel at all the time, that I haven't felt in the previous films. And I did I did hear. For some reason, I mean, Matt Singer wrote about it recently. I saw his comments on Letterboxd. He said, literally two full hours into the movie, DiCaprio is still explaining the rules of the dream world to Ellen Page. I do feel like it's gratuitous. And even more than that, it feels arbitrary. Once you start noticing those things when you start asking a lot of those questions then then you're derailed from that central story that i agree with you is supposed to be the central story that's supposed to be pun intended here i guess or metaphor intended the train tracks that holds this whole thing together but once you start diverting from that path you start noticing the holes in it you start noticing the holes in how believable their relationship is and i think that exposition is a key is a key distraction here let me say this if there's any actress that's up to the challenge and she almost pulls it off it's certainly marion cotillard and i love how nolan does use point of view in those sequences so that we're aligned with Cobb when he's walking into those those rooms with her and when we arrive in a space where maybe he slash we shouldn't be and she's waiting there for us that turn of hers to the camera we get a couple times that's a really frightening jolt like a legitimately catches you off guard and makes you gasp a little bit like we've been caught like jimmy stewart in rear window so i do i do really appreciate some of those aspects of it without a doubt but i think the the evolution for me josh ultimately isn't in nolan's ability here to maybe tell a more emotional story it's it's in the meta layer. It's that this feels like the the culmination of his preoccupations in terms of using the language of cinema and wrapping that around the actual the content and the substance of these films, the way the people even communicate with each other and the way we as viewers experience their world is it's equivalent. It's like we're in that that spiral, right, of this dream, this dream experience. We're unified with them in a way that I do think is an evolution for him. And we can talk about that a little bit more. That meta aspect of this film is what fascinates me. It's not the relationship. Yeah. And to speak to the expository thing you're talking about, because that was my main complaint about Interstellar, and I'm looking forward to seeing what I make of it the second time. Uh, I think there's a distinction here in that a lot of the information, from what I remember of Interstellar, it was a lot of like, I don't know, was it a black hole or a supernova or something, whatever. It was like stuff we didn't really need to know for that story to progress. But the information we're given here is there's two things about it. For one thing, it is necessary. Some of it, it's talky. I agree. But some of it we do need to know just to get the ground rules. The other thing is, and, and this maybe is an argument against it, but whenever we're getting those ground rules, we're getting visual cues as well. So the Ellen Page training sequence, however you want to describe that, is the perfect example, right? While we're getting talked to, we're seeing this imagery of this city folding in on itself and, and all these other insane things happening. And so you could make the case maybe you didn't need both. But I think here where 
it's not based in necessarily reality to kind of, and it's this, this concept that we've never even understood before. Um, it's not like we have a vague notion of outer space and just tell me we're going out far in outer space. I'm good. This is a sci-fi movie. That's all I need, right? This is different. We need a little bit of the architecture to use a word that applies to this film. So I do forgive it a little bit more for that. And the other thing is there are a lot of instances in this film where Nolan does not bother to do that at all. And again, I'm going back to the opening sequence where to make us understand how these worlds are connected, when Cobb has to wake up, he's they push him, his chair, right into the tub. And then we cut to a shot of the dream that Cobb is in, and the water just comes. Again, practical effect, right? The set just gets flooded with this water. And like that, without needing anyone to explain anything to us, we realize how the real world and the dream world are connected. So I guess for me, there is a lot of exposition in Inception, but it is almost always backed up by visual information as well, which makes it a little bit less tedious. I get that. And when we get to Interstellar, maybe we can compare notes and see if that truly is the distinction. It may be. But I do have to point out that it's information we do need to know is precisely what people like me said defending Interstellar at the time and would still say now about it. And I think that is reflective of whether or not you are locked in to the relationships and to the way the movie is working on you on an emotional level and also an intellectual level. If you're if you're on that journey, as I was with Interstellar, then that exposition all feels really necessary to me, just like it all feels necessary to you here because you were bought in to that Mal-Dom relationship yeah, and wanting be. to wanting to see how that played out. So I think you are you are in those circumstances willing to willing to forgive things a little bit more. And I certainly wouldn't point to those early sequences where that stuff is getting explained as a problem. It's more as we get the second, third, fourth time that someone says, yes, but things work like this in the dream world. And then someone says, but no, not this one. No, it's different. It actually works like this. Like that, that just happens repeatedly in this film. And it, it did feel a bit gratuitous to me. Well, let me ask a quick question. Did you feel you sure. were ahead of those things that you didn't need that information? No, it's, it's arbitrary. It felt like the movie was making it up in the moment as opposed to it feeling like these established rules of the world that I could really buy into. It felt like it was convenient for the mechanics of the plot that in that moment he could just make up and do whatever he wanted in that particular instance. Yeah, I, I guess I guess for me, like one of the thrills of this movie is how, again, going back to the brazen opening where Inception, a normal filmmaker would start Inception by putting us in a dream. Like, oh, we're in a dream and these characters infiltrate dreams. And now I'm going to let you get your mm -hmm. mind around that. Then I will move. This is what I love about Nolan is he trusts pop audiences, right? He's like, then I'll move you into the dream within a dream. No, this movie mm -hmm. starts. That's what I was saying with a dream within a dream. So already things yeah. are complicated. So I feel like it's not arbitrary because the escalation in this film is so thrilling. It's just, it's like, we're what now we're where now. And I am not going to begrudge because I'll just say it. Like I was grateful for a little reorientation along the way because then I could appreciate where I was a little bit more. I didn't need the map exactly laid out for me, but I need a little bit of that sense of, of why things were different at this level where these characters had never been before or most of them. To, to keep up with them. So I yeah. guess that's why it worked for me. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the, the meta aspect of the film because it is, as I said, what intrigues me the most. The correlations, and I've talked about this before on the show, but the correlations between Cobb as a filmmaker slash artist in the role that he is serving as this 
kind of producer slash director of these dream sequences, right? And his crew and their correlation to various movie crew roles that are pretty obvious. And the talk of true inspiration that's happening as they are creating some of these worlds together. And there's that great moment during that first run through the dream world with Ariadne where she says, why are they looking at me? The projections start yeah. to, to turn on her, right? And he explains that it's because you're changing things. My subconscious feels that someone else is creating the world. The more you change things, the quicker the projections converge on you. And he says that they feel the foreign nature of the dreamer and they attack it like an infection. And I think that is such a perfect explanation of the idea. And ultimately, my experience with this film, Josh, what I'm trying to kind of articulate, and it's any viewer's experience when they are no longer able to suspend disbelief in the way that they want to and should with, with any film. And that's once you become aware that you're watching someone else's creation, that you start to see the creator, which can be thrilling in its own ways too, don't get me wrong, but you are inherently pulled out of that world. And sometimes that can make you really angry. And I love that description. And I love Cobb and seeing him as a stand-in for Nolan. I know that that's been documented elsewhere in terms of even DiCaprio's appearance is similar to Nolan in some ways, but he's this director who has amassed this crew and they have all put their faith in him, right? We have the sequence where he reveals something that he hadn't told all of them before and they realize what's really at stake and that this is really dire. And it's like, it would be almost like my second Herzog reference here on the show. It would be almost like you go into the jungle with Herzog and you're trusting him completely. And then all of a sudden you're under attack and everyone has malaria and you're going, how did I get here? Right. So in this case, though, you have a director in Cobb where the very project he's embarking on is one that requires him as an artist to mine his subconscious, which is what any director, what any real artist ultimately does have to do. But what can happen then is those bad things can emerge, those malls. Right. And that's no surprise that they they call her that they can emerge and maybe you can make them disappear. Maybe you can't. And maybe they cause so much torment and havoc that they destroy the whole process and the whole project. And I, I thought that was so fascinating that that corollary here where maybe, you know, this crew and the cast and the audience, even we've all made a deal with the director. We've all struck this bargain and we hope that he's going to hold up. The filmmaker is going to hold up his end of the bargain. But maybe you're so compromised and maybe you're so corrupted that you can't, you know. And when we get that line, too, where he explains to her that you can never recreate places from your memory, always imagine new places. I can hear Nolan on one hand reproaching personal filmmakers who don't create worlds on the scale that he does, who don't use the same imagination that he does, who basically just try to regurgitate their own lives and experiences onto the screen. Or maybe it's more simple than that, and it's just a warning. It's this kind of personal warning where he's saying, this, this is what happens. This is what can happen. The perils of telling personal stories, of mining your subconscious too deeply, if you go too deep, it can all unravel on you. Yeah. See, this is the sort of meta stuff. This is why I thought you were going to come around on Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. This is I know, and <laughs> I did. It's all this stuff, and it's why I still like Inception, Josh. Yeah. It's why I still like Inception as well as because of the craft that you've touched on in so many ways. But it's it's not enough. It's not enough to compensate for what I felt was a 
as I said, weak foundation here for that relationship. So the other thing that I really liked about it, I've been talking about this culmination, but the other film that, you know, again, I'm going to give Interstellar a fair shot. Some people say it's their favorite, so it could jump up really high. But the other film in contention for that top slot for me from Nolan is Dunkirk. And I love how the time games here in Inception Mm -hmm. point ahead to Dunkirk. Now, you can also say that they point back to Memento, right? Which is is probably Absolutely. is that your still your favorite? Would you say at this point? It's still my number one. Yeah, and your number quick, one. They they point ahead just ahead to Interstellar too in the the key sequence here where ten seconds for one person is that's three it. minutes to that's, another yep. and sixty minutes to another. That's that's the key emotional sequence of Interstellar. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly where I was going. I mean that that is another instance where and, and just trying to think back to it like. I don't know how much ex- we do get exposition. We get that exact line, right? They lay out the the timing for it so that we know. But again, I would argue it was necessary. And then once we've got that information, how much more important is it when we see that the van is falling in slow motion for the from that bridge for what, like ten minutes or whatever of screen time? I mean, it's yeah. it's just brilliant how that is laid out, how it's envisioned, how it's executed, and how so much of it. I I know there you know is computer generated imagery in this movie. I don't want to overblow that, but how much of it is is done as practically as possible, um, and made us to feel like this is all happening in the real world. So yeah. Just just another through line of the plane of time, which, again, we mentioned in following, it was right there from the start, right? It mm-hmm. wasn't purely chronological. It is somehow here becomes uh, to this culmination of the crucial element of the climactic sequence here. So I absolutely yeah. loved that. Yeah, I loved it before, too. Back in 2010, I remember that I was so mesmerized by the cutting between the van and the hotel and that Bond villain snow lair and the skiing. There's really actually not that much skiing that happens in that sequence no, but, even, but right? Here's, here's the problem with that is, and I agree with you, it's, it's not that it's terrible. I mean, I don't think... I still don't think here action is Nolan's strong suit. Like a lot of those fight scenes in the mm-hmm. snow sequence are not great. The problem is what's happening in the van is so fascinating. And then what's happening in the hotel sequence is even more mind-blowing. And then you get to a ski slope, right? It's it's just like we're expecting yeah. him to ratchet up to a new level of really of physics is what, is what yes. we're expecting. And instead, we get back to James Bond. So there's a, there's a sense of deflation there that I completely agree with. And I think it also yeah. falls into an element of this movie that, you know, there's too much gunplay. This movie does not. There's way too much. Does not no, need gunplay, and there's way too much of it. There really is. It. It. I'll go back to the word tedious. That's how it felt to me. And that sequence you're talking about, we do spend, of course, the most time in that particular portion of the levels in that snow layer. So if you aren't caught up in that, then you really wish you were getting back even more often to one of those other sequences. And even worse, if your brain has been infiltrated by Sam the Nolan nitpicker. Again, we had no conversation about this ahead of time, but I apparently morphed into him watching this film. This time, Josh, I'm thinking about the mechanics of it. I'm thinking about the timing that they set up and how the way it plays out doesn't match the time they establish at all. And I'm thinking about how they're all such badasses all of a sudden. And did they get military training? Are they are they doing in dreams what they can't do in real life? And yeah, then if so, why are yeah, they grounded? Yeah. You know like, like, I'm asking all of those <laughs> questions. And again, when you're asking all of those questions, then then you're distracted. You're turning in and you're projecting on the filmmaker and you're getting angry. And I, I was know. getting angry watching this film because of that. I, I think 
if you're asking those questions, you I don't know if you should be allowed to watch the movie. Actually, those just aren't okay. the questions. Well, that was my experience. Let me say also with the one thing, the reason why it's not a total loss, the snow sequence, is because, and this goes back to the emotional resonance, something key happens there, which I think is important. And this is where Killian Murphy, as the CEO's son, the heir, right? The the billionaire's heir that this whole job is about, finds He's being deluded. He's being duped. Don't get me wrong. But when he goes into that room, that like 2001 style room with his, the projection of his dead father, his dying Mm -hmm. father, and opens the safe and sees in that safe, the pinwheel, which is the same pinwheel that's in the photograph of him as a child with his son that he keeps trying to put by his dying father's bedside and the father doesn't notice. Like these are all emotional elements that have been laid throughout the film. I don't care if this guy still gets to be a billionaire. I don't care if he breaks up his companies, but in that moment I cared if he felt some sort of resolution with his father. And that impressed me that I actually cared because it really had no bearing on the rest of the movie, but it showed me that the emotional work had been done in the performances by Killian Murphy in the previous scenes that Nolan had embedded to establish the relationship. And and it's almost like, I mean, to go bring it back to the meta thing you're talking about, Adam, how often does Tom Hardy's Eames talk about what we got to get to is the relationship. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like to make this heist work, th- this is the meta thing for me. Okay, to make the heist work, we've got to connect on a human emotional level with this billionaire son. Who cares about secrets, mechanics, yes, all this other stuff? That's the same thing with Inception. If this movie is going to work, and obviously it didn't yeah. for you, it, it's going to have to also function on emotional human level. And I think there is so yes. much attention given to that. It's something Nolan knew. It's something he cast the right actors for. It's something he wrote the right scenes for. And it follows through for me all the way to the end. And I think it comes back really to the spinning top. It does matter if the top falls or not because the goal of the movie the goal of this team the goal of Cobb it's only achieved if he genuinely authentically consciously forgives himself and so for me the top's got to fall it's got to fall to have that emotional resolution now Nolan may be playing games by not showing us that's the trickster in him right but I don't know I I think it's it just has that sort of um, oomph for me at the end of this movie. And and I'm curious, I don't know where, like where you are on the whole, did the top fall or not thing is that you probably where say I it, am is you probably say it doesn't matter. Don't you don't care. No, I, I just, I just legitimately don't care. Wow. That's the problem. Wow. Like I really don't, okay. I really don't like it will not, it will not occupy another moment in my brain after we stop this review. So there's no doubt as we're closing this up and had a very different experience with this film, clearly that he knows it. That meta commentary is there. That's Nolan again engaging with his audience the same way the the magicians and the prestige are openly talking about filmmaking and the process of creating art while they're talking about their lives and talking about the choices they make at the end of that film. And so when he says that, you're right, he has Eames express that. I think he's being very knowing and winking in what the endeavor of this film is. But as with every artistic endeavor, the intellectual process that goes into it and what you want to achieve and what you do or what you execute and how the audience reacts to it. Those are often very different things. Now, one last meta touch that I like speaking to all of this and openly using the language of cinema, putting those words in the voices of these characters at one point in the explanation, 
to, I think, Ariadne again. He explains that when you dream, your mind functions more quickly, so time seems to pass more slowly. And all I could think about is Nolan winking at us a little bit because how do you shoot something in slow motion on film? You don't slow the camera mm-hmm, down. Right. You speed it up. It's achieved because it's a faster frame rate. You, you project that faster frame rate normally, and when you do that, it seems slower. So that's, that's him again. I would say potentially subconsciously putting those types of, of words and ideas into these characters' mouths, but maybe very consciously trying to have them speak in the language of movies. All right, so end on, to end on a positive note for both of us, do you have a favorite sequence from it? Because as I mentioned, it's like it's a series of escalations. You, you, I kept feeling like, oh, can't get better than this. It can't get better than this. But, but <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I can decide. I mean, I, I kind of. Part of me almost likes that opening sequence, even though on some level it's the simplest. But again, having not vi- revisited it since 2010, just the thrill of understanding what we're in for at that opening might make it my favorite. The whole, you know, until basically they're woken up in that uh, that apartment building. I just love. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I would probably go with that too because I do think that's that's ultimately the most effective part of the film, though I do still very much appreciate that sequence we touched on with Ellen Page when he's, he's surprising her. And the more than anything, the power that she feels when she has the the control over her yeah. surroundings, yeah. that's that's really thrilling to watch, genuinely, but also confounding and troubling in a lot of ways. And you see, you see with that power comes all the damage that you can potentially do. So that's another sequence that really stands out for me. Inception is available on demand on most platforms, or you know, just close your eyes and it will play like a dream tonight. I'm sure. The movie Josh that I believe coming into this marathon. I had listed as my second favorite Christopher Nolan film. Did you really? I know I had it at number two. Yeah. I feel like you had something else ahead of it, but maybe but, I did. But I don't know. Yeah, and it are you high. are you like re-ranking as we yes. go here? Yeah, I haven't actually gone and shifted. I'm going to wait until the overview. Oh, is sure. Over. Yeah, but yeah, I am definitely I'm definitely shifting as we go here. If you revisit Inception and disagree or agree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our show, Josh. It is. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking what is the best film about jazz or jazz musicians. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital release this weekend, Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, John Lewis, Good Trouble, a documentary about the civil rights leader and longtime congressman from Georgia, and The Truth, the English-language debut for Japan's Hirokazu Koreeda. It stars Juliette Binoche, Catherine Deneuve, and Ethan Hawke. Josh, I almost got this one fit in before we taped the show and did our top five films of the year so far. It was the last one up. Just couldn't make time for it, but I'm excited to see this. Obviously, fans of Coreda here on the show, and that cast is incredible. So I'm a little disappointed that it hasn't gotten more buzz coming out of, I think, Cannes last year, but one I'm definitely excited to see here in the near future. Next week on the show, we are going to share our 8 from 84 discussion of Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club, maybe some other new releases that we touch on. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Kat Sullivan. 
Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. Our music this week is by Phoebe Bridgers. More information is at phoebeffenbridgers.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.